Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And you forgetting something, Moya? Um, no, I'm pretty sure I'm Moya Dodd. I say it every time we do this. But since the last time, you've become Moya Dodd AO, an officer of the Order of Australia, for your service to football as a player and administrator, as a role model to women, and of course, to the law as well. Congratulations. That is so brilliant. So well-deserved. Thank you, Matt. I don't mention anything about service to podcasting, but they might be saving that for your AC, maybe next year. Uh, I don't think so. ACs are for the Frank Lowys of the world, above my pay grade, I'm afraid. Anyway, I always thought AO was adults only. You know, you'd hear it where there was about to be something European on SBS, or sex between soccer as it used to be known before things were called football. That's right. There used to be a separate classification system for TV, of course. Um, AO was the highest rating below NST, which was not suitable for television. Mm-hmm. That was aligned with the film system in 1993, but there are still some ratings that are unique to each one. And don't get me started on video games. I wasn't going to, Matt. (laughs) Ironically, there was a recent review of classification regulation. Oh, was there? Very interesting field. That was conducted by Neville Stevens AO long after the AO classification was abandoned. All right, all right. Well, here we go again. Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. And just this one time to shut up my co-host, I'm Moya Dodd, AO. Also stands for all out, by the way, like England were for 273 at Edgbaston. Sorry, England. Actually, not sorry. And you can take revenge anywhere except in the World Cup against the Matildas, should they meet the Lionesses or the Carolines, as I like to call them. All done? Yeah, done. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Well, today... The road to net zero. Ilona Miller from our Climate Change and Sustainability Group talks about Australia's new environmental regulatory framework, which is meant to underwrite our commitments under the Paris Agreement, while not being a carbon tax. Definitely not a carbon tax. She'll also talk about the industry collaborations that we're likely to need to achieve those commitments, but which may lead to competition law issues. The decarbonisation challenge is not one that any one country business can can face alone. The challenge and the emergency around addressing climate change is something that we have to be addressing now and addressing using all available resources. So there is a real need for that collaboration between industry competitors to come up with particularly the technology solutions that are going to enable sort of rapid deployment of new clean energy technology, decarbonisation technology. I actually wanted to call this episode The Cars That Ate Paris after the 1974 horror comedy by Peter Weir. is huh. an AM, but the film was an AO when it screened on TV. Huh. We might save that for our electric vehicle episode, though. Y- yeah. Why don't you just tell us what's been happening around the grounds? Okay. We don't just like to talk about what the firm's been doing here on the podcast, but given all the talk about the merger approval process, public benefits and undertakings, it's pretty significant that the ACCC has authorised the merger between Linfox, Armagard and Prosegur Australia. That's those very serious looking armoured vans and armoured people that you see driving around town and waiting outside banks. That's right. They're all part of the cash in transit business that transports old school notes and coins for banks and retailers, often between the two. They also operate ATM networks across the country. And you'd think those maybe aren't the growth industries that they used to be. No, I mean, cash is still really important for a lot of people, but there are more and more alternatives these days. During the pandemic, a lot of retailers took up contactless payments for the first time. Some of them don't even take cash anymore. And a lot of us are using cash much less often, if at all. 
I used to carry cash to pay for the big issue, but they've got FPOS machines now. Yeah, a guy asked me for some spare change the other day, and I said, sorry, no cash. And he said, no problem, I have pay ID. Well, pretty soon the only people who carry coins will be the referees who need them for the toss. That's right. I keep having to send the kids to school with a gold coin donation for whatever. Every time it takes a bit longer to look down the back of the sofas and in the old junk drawers. Yeah, well, they'll be asking for a Bitcoin donation before you know it. No doubt. (laughs) Anyway, Prosiger and Armaguard are the two major providers of those cash services in Australia, so this could be seen as a two-to-one merger. And the ACCC did recognise that the industry was in structural decline, and one of the two major players would be very likely to exit the market in the short term. Right, but it still thought that would be the most competitive outcome, uh, because smaller players and potential new entrants would have more of an opportunity to compete with whoever was left in the market. So the ACCC's position in the statutory language was that it was not satisfied that the acquisition would not lessen competition. So it would only authorise the merger if there were public benefits that outweighed that potential lessening of competition. Exactly. And it found there was a public benefit in an orderly exit from the market that wouldn't leave customers in the lurch with no notice and no transition period, and would also give the government more time to think about how to manage that continuing decline in cash. And the parties backed that up with an enforceable undertaking. Was that a behavioural undertaking? So it's partly structural in that the merger parties will divest any assets they don't need to potential competitors who might want them. Mm -hmm. And that includes sites, uh, employees and equipment. But they've also committed to providing their ATM services to independent ATM deployers on a non-discriminatory basis for three years. So that's pretty behavioural. And I think this is the first time in a while that a merger in Australia has been found to be anti-competitive but was authorised because the public benefits outweighed that detriment. That's right. It didn't happen in any of the merger authorisations that the tribunal decided when it had that power between 2007 and 2017, or in the ones the ACCC decided when it got the power back in 2017. So those were all authorised on the basis that there was no anti-competitive detriment, or they were denied because there was no net public benefit. Yeah, you really have to go back to the 1980s and 90s when the ACCC authorised quite a few mergers in industries that had a lot of excess capacity, and clearly needed to be rationalised, like uh, the motor vehicle spring industry or the canned deciduous fruit industry. Canned deciduous fruits? Isn't that what the awesome foursome used to eat? Pardon me, girls. Is that a Goulburn Valley fruit snack? Oh, please don't sing. <laughs> Look, I'm just happy that the ACCC is defending these essential inputs for a successful World Cup. You know, first we had the charter flights. Now we've got armoured vehicles for those cash-carrying referees. I wonder what's next. Oh, what about tissues or handkerchiefs for everyone stuck up in the nosebleeds? Yeah, I'll be needing some of those. What else have we got? Well, we can't not talk about the recently announced merger of the Saudi-backed Live Golf with the US PGA Tour and the European DP World Tour. Indeed. I remember last year we said that Live Golf was suing the PGA Tour for excluding Live Golfers from its tournaments, saying it had abused its monopoly and monopsony power and had persuaded the DP World Tour, another monopoly, to do the same. That's right, and the PGA Tour, for its part, had accused Live Golf of existing to sportswash the recent history of Saudi atrocities. But now it's praising the deal for removing rivalry and taking the competitor off the board. So now we have a merger that combines alleged monopolies in the US and Europe with their most vigorous competitor, reportedly without instructing any antitrust lawyers in the process. Colour me surprised. I see that US Senator Elizabeth Warren has written to the Attorney General and the Department of Justice saying the deal is likely to breach US antitrust laws, as well as the sports washing. And Senator Ron Wyden wrote directly to the PGA asking them to explain what's going on. Yeah, and the DOJ has reportedly told the PGA Tour that it's investigating the deal. It already has an open investigation looking into the complaints by Liv Goff, 
and Liv and the PGA have ended their antitrust court action against each other, but that doesn't mean the enforcement agency will give them a mulligan. Wait, was that a sports reference? Stay in your lane. Was that a sports reference? Maybe. This is sounding a bit like the Stephen King case, where the DOJ looked at the power of the publishers dealing with likely best-selling authors. Aren't the tournaments in a similar position in relation to pro golfers? Yeah, they kind of are. We've heard reports of the huge amounts that Live Golf has paid to the Rebel Golfers, more than $100 million for each of the top three. But even the lowest paid players are getting a lot more than they would with the PGA. And that probably wouldn't happen without that competition between the competitions. So this all really fits in with a monopoly labour model that Dr. Brian Clark of the DOJ spoke about in our last episode. Now, we're talking about this as a merger, but actually the exact structure of the arrangement doesn't seem particularly clear at the moment, does it? No, and that's one of the things that Senator Wyden has asked the PGA. They all seem to be avoiding the word merger now. They're calling it an investment or a partnership, Mm -hmm. but one that will combine their operations and unify golf. And that all sounds a bit like a merger. Even if it's not, though, it could still be an agreement not to compete, which could raise its own issues. Sounds like they've got the competition lawyers involved now. Time for anything else? Well, there have been a few recent personnel changes in the competition and regulation extended universe. The first is that the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner is having a few renovations done. There are actually three key roles at the office. There's the Information Commissioner, the Privacy Commissioner, and the Freedom of Information Commissioner. And Commissioner Angeline Fork is the first two at the moment. Right. And there hasn't been an FOI commissioner since May when Leo Hardiman, PSM, resigned less than a year into his five-year term, saying basically he didn't have the resources or the support within his office to do his job. Mm, We've put in an FOI request for his letter of resignation, but is that a bit optimistic? Actually, a lot of people have put in FOI requests recently, and they've been turned around pretty quickly, including some emails about the resignation and the situation leading up to it which really paint quite a tense situation within the office. Well, that's one way to fix a problem, short term anyway. Right. In the longer term, though, Attorney General Mark Dreyfus, KC, has announced there will be a separate privacy commissioner appointed soon, as well as a new FOI commissioner, while Angeline Fork will stay on as information commissioner and the head of the office overall. Well, three heads are better than one, huh? Unless you're talking about Cerberus, the three-headed dog that guards the entrance to Hades. Yeah, or Fluffy, the three-headed dog from Harry Potter. Talk about a triple threat. The three up front. Over at the ACCC, there's also a new chief economist. Dr. Leela Chorgo has just replaced Dr. Graham Woodbridge, who was appointed back in 2015. And Dr. Chorgo has previously been chief economist at the Competition Bureau in Canada, where she's from, and the Competition Commission in New Zealand, where she's still a lay member of the High Court. She was also head of economics and policy at the Competition Commission in Hong Kong, where I think our own Peter Waters was heavily involved in drafting the competition law. Can we say that? Uh, I think it's in the parliamentary record. She also worked at Charles River Associates, like a lot of competition lawyers we know, like Jeff Peterson. And you. Plus, she's also published a well-reviewed detective novel, The Janus Affair, and written a number of short stories and plays. Well, if she's moved back down under so she can watch Olympic champions Canada play in the World Cup, then she's a perfect fit for this podcast. That sounds like an invitation. Invitation it is. Finally, we have a new Chief Justice of the Federal Court and the Honourable Deborah Mortimer, who's been on the court since 2013 and was at the Victorian Bar before that. I imagine Her Honour had one of those ceremonial sittings where she invited various dignitaries to stand up and tell her about her life. She did. It's kind of a weird format, but once you get past that, it's pretty inspiring. The Chief Justice had, of course, a very distinguished academic and legal career, ton of pro bono work, which is great to see. Indeed, she was the judge on the Palm Island case of racial discrimination by the Queensland Police, wasn't she? And she's done quite a few native title cases. That's right, as well as some important ones on misleading and deceptive conduct and unconscionable conduct. 
She even imposed what was at the time the highest ever civil penalty for unconscionable conduct in Australia at $50 million. So it'll be interesting to see how the court moves on those issues, whether or not we get a new prohibition on unfair trading practices. Yeah, and we can also expect to see some more action in the court on unfair terms in standard form contracts when those become illegal in November of this year. So some key changes to the roster there and we'll see how it all plays out. But you recently sat down with partner Ilona Miller, who's head of the Climate Change and Sustainability Group here at GNT, about recent developments in environmental regulation, where there's been a lot of action lately. There has. Ilona took me through the latest targets under the Paris Agreement and how those have now been implemented in Australia and what businesses have to do individually or more likely together to meet the targets. Let's take a listen. I'm joined today by Alona Miller, who leads the climate change and sustainability practice here at Gilbert and Tobin. Alona, welcome to The Competitive Edge. Great. Nice to be here, Matt. After what seems like quite a long time, Australia now has greenhouse emissions targets that are reflected in the law. Could you just sketch out the framework that's going to apply here over the next decade or so? Sure. So we've had an incredibly busy 12 months of climate policy development here in Australia. The first thing that the Albanese government did when it was elected was update and enhance and strengthen what's called our nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement. So that was communicated to the international community. But what we then did was take the next step to legislate that target and our net zero by 2050 target in the Climate Change Act. So the Climate Change Act came into force in September and what it does is set a target for 2030 to reduce our emissions by 43% below 2005 levels and then also that commitment to net zero by 2050. But importantly, the Act also provides a framework for the Climate Change Authority to provide regular advice to the Minister for Climate Change, which will be publicly disclosed to Parliament and to the community about how we're progressing towards our targets and also puts in place a process to review and update our targets on a regular basis. So we're about to move into a phase reasonably soon where we'll start looking at what our target is for 2035 and then sort of moving forward beyond that. And then how do those targets translate into obligations on industries or participants in those industries? So the the Climate Change Act provides a framework and sets the targets, but the government has decided to take, I guess, what you'd call a sectoral approach to decarbonisation across the, the different industry sectors. So by way of example, for the electricity sector, we have a a target of achieving 82% renewable energy by 2030. But in order to do that, a lot of it is going to be through investment in the infrastructure to provide transmission distribution. And so the approach for the electricity sector is different to the approach being taken to the transport sector, for example, which in some cases will be subject to safeguard mechanism compliance, which I can come back to. But also we're looking at a strategy for electric vehicles and the application of more stringent fuel standards. So sort of sector by sector, the government is looking at what is the best way to deliver the overarching 2030 target. This is quite different to the previous policies we had under the Labor government back in 2011 when we had an economy-wide carbon price. But unfortunately, that as a policy tool, you know, was branded a carbon tax and obviously had quite a fettered history of repeal. And so, unfortunately, we haven't gone back to that. 
but we do now have a, a clearer process for carbon pricing and that price signal through the safeguard mechanism. Can you, what can you tell us about the safeguard mechanism? So the safeguard mechanism has been in existence for a number of years. It was the policy that was introduced following the repeal of the, the carbon pricing mechanism. And what it does is it applies to around about 215, 219 large industrial and resources facilities that emit above 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. Each of those facilities has a baseline and if they exceed their baseline, they need to source Australian carbon credit units or what we call ACUs. And that framework has been in place for a long time, but the problem with it has been that the baselines were set at a level largely based on historical data and with a huge amount of headroom for some facilities. So if you look at compliance over the past five or six years with the safeguard mechanism, there's literally a handful of companies or facilities that have exceeded their baseline. What the reforms to the safeguard mechanism do are probably three or four key things. The first thing is to reset the baselines. So we remove the headroom that is there within those existing baselines. So the first thing is that the baselines for these facilities will be coming down. The second thing is that we're now setting a decline rate for each of those baselines. So rather than having a sort of static baseline, year on year out to 2030, those facilities will have a declining baseline of up to 4.9%. Third thing is give an incentive to these facilities that if they do stay below their baseline, they can create a new form of carbon credit known as a safeguard mechanism credit. And so that credit then can be banked for future compliance or it can be traded with other facilities that need to use credits if they're in a baseline exceedance scenario. They're the sort of fundamentals of the safeguard. There are some sort of flexibility provisions that will make it perhaps less onerous if you're in that emissions intensive trade exposed space. So, for example, green steel or those types of industries that are rapidly dealing with international competition, but also looking to transform the way that they, they use energy. There's also some other provisions in respect of what are known as multi-year monitoring periods, which means that you can average out your potential liability and safeguard compliance over a five-year period. And as long as you stay below your baseline for that five-year period, then that's okay. But you've got to demonstrate that you're implementing new technology in that period. So there's some interesting opportunities for facilities to work within the safeguard mechanism. So it's not a complete hard stick. There are carrots there and flexible mechanisms so that industry can ultimately decarbonize in a more considered and, I guess, processed way. And how do you think that compares to the carbon price that we had briefly 12 years ago in terms of complexity, ease of compliance or monitoring and also effectiveness? Look, I was a very big fan of the previous carbon price mechanism. There were some challenges with it because it didn't work as a fundamentally true market mechanism because the price caps were included in the final design rather than letting the price float based on market dynamics. But that said, it was a very sort of simple and elegant approach, which enabled a, a much wider segment of the economy to be subject to carbon pricing and to make decisions about how they could achieve abatement at least cost and access allowances and carbon credits. The, the process around the safeguard mechanism is much more complex, to be honest. In order to set a baseline, for example, you've got to understand each of the production variables at a facility. You've got to understand the emissions intensity of each of those variables. 
we're moving for new facilities to provisions that require those intensities to be set based on international best practice. What does that look like? You know, how do you t- determine what that is? So there, there is quite a lot of additional technical complexity in managing a safeguard baseline. And how does this compare to the way things are being approached overseas? Is it like anywhere else or have we just come up with it ourselves? It's, it's quite unique. Um, we're, I think, one of the only countries globally that applies what's effectively now a baseline and credit scheme. So most emissions trading schemes are allowance schemes where essentially you set a cap on the emissions across covered entities within either a sector or an economy. That sort of typically then covers all of the emissions for that covered entity or covered facility. Here with a baseline credit scheme, you know, your liability is only in respect of your exceedance above your baseline. And also there's that, that question of what type of credits are eligible in the scheme. So you, you're not being allocated allowances. You're having to go to the market to source credits. Here in Australia, that is the, the ACUs or the Australian Carbon Credit Units but now also the safeguard mechanism credits. So it's, it's quite exciting from a market's perspective to have a new form of credit and what will that look like? How will that be priced? You know, that's going to be interesting to, to watch. But it is quite different to the emissions trading schemes that we see in New Zealand, in Europe, in California, in Canada and other places. So we've got a fairly complex system of incentives and also liabilities that are imposed by the safeguard mechanism and that broader framework. I guess there are other pressures or imperatives on businesses to reduce their emissions as well. Um, What can you tell us about those and how they interact with the process that we have? You know, you almost want to step back to 2015 when the Paris Agreement was adopted. That put in place an overarching objective for countries to seek to achieve net zero by the second half of the century, which most people now talk to a net zero by 2050 target. But what Paris did was bring a very big corporate cohort, both to the Paris discussions, but also to the commitments that are now being made by companies to decarbonize. So a lot of companies have set their own net zero targets. They're actively looking at their decarbonization strategies. That pressure has largely come from the investment community. So you've got groups like Climate Action 100, which are large institutional investors who are working with large emitting companies and banks and financial institutions that have a role in finance in respect of decarbonisation. And you have a lot of stakeholder interest in what companies are doing to decarbonise. So companies are setting targets, both 2050, but also interim targets. A number of them are also aligning those targets with sort of standards and practices like science-based targets. And that, I think, creates a a real driver for decarbonisation. If you're setting a science-based target, you've got to be able to demonstrate how you're going to achieve that over time. In many instances, that needs to be done based on the mitigation hierarchy. So starting with what you can avoid, reduce, mitigate, how you change your practices, coming to the very pointy end, which is for those emissions that you can't reduce or avoid, um, having the process of offsetting and then actually drawing down and, and, and having removals as well. So all of that is sort of playing into the way that companies are engaging with this. But, you know, we certainly see a large number of companies that are actively looking at their approaches to decarbonisation and stepping through in a quite 
logical and methodical way what they can do at different time points when they need to make particular operational decisions in their business. I guess beyond carbon emission reductions, there are environmental sustainability concerns that businesses might have or their investors or their customers. What are the sort of main areas there that they'll be looking at? Climate has been at the forefront over the last sort of five or six years for business, but increasingly we're seeing a sharp focus come now to biodiversity. At the end of last year, COP15 Montreal Biodiversity Conference agreed to a new biodiversity framework, which is looking specifically at how you can preserve and restore 30% of degraded landscapes, of oceans, you know, of land areas. So there is a real push to think about biodiversity and nature. Really great example is a leading health supplement company that has done a fantastic exercise mapping its impacts and dependencies, but at least 1,500 of the inputs into its products come from areas that are at nature risk because they're sourced from wild sources in forests and things like that. And similar to to climate, where you had Climate Action 100 shepherding companies to understand and map and report and disclose on climate risk. We're seeing a similar approach in respect of nature risk with some of the large companies from the investor community. And down the track, there is sort of talk about also moving towards looking more broadly at at other sort of areas of of risk in respect of, you know, equity um, and so forth. The, the move to a more circular economy is another area which is, I think, important to both support decarbonisation, but also to support other environmental objectives. We haven't seen as much from a policy perspective around that, but I know it's something that the, the federal government is, is very keen on. Ultimately, if we can be looking at ways in which we provide both a decarbonized and circular approach to different industry, industrial processes, be it manufacturing, be it energy from waste, be it, you know, thinking more broadly around recycling of key industry components then we're able to reduce waste, but also have multiple byproducts that can be recycled, reused, generate electricity, generate energy, and also support that approach to decarbonisation. So that's another area, again, where having greater collaboration around some of those circular economy solutions would be highly beneficial. Absolutely. One of the questions we're really interested in is how much of this stuff can a business do by itself? And how much does it need to collaborate with other people in the industry or upstream and downstream, some of whom might be its competitors? And what are the reasons that it might need to look beyond its own capabilities? The decarbonisation challenge is not one that any one country business can, can face alone. The challenge and the emergency around addressing climate change is something that we have to be addressing now and addressing using all available resources. So there is a real need for that collaboration between industry competitors to come up with particularly the technology solutions that are going to enable sort of rapid deployment of new clean energy technology, decarbonisation technology. You know, you see that in terms of some of the the approaches that need to be taken, for example, with respect to heavy vehicles for the mining sector. And if we want to move from diesel vehicles or diesel locomotives and trains for shipment of product to electric models, 
you need to be bringing everyone to the table to, to come up with a, a solution that can be deployed quickly and at scale. So there is, a, I think, a real need for, for greater collaboration to drive these technology solutions. And is that happening yet here or overseas? There are some good examples. ClimateWorks has been looking at particular problems for sectors, be it the steel sector, mining sector, and working in a sort of sandbox environment with competitors to come up with pathways and ideas around how to rapidly decarbonise that particular industry sector. So there's some really good work going on, but it's moving it from that kind of think tank space to operational collaboration and working within supply chains to, to do that as well. There's some um, information, I think, about a couple of large resources and mining companies collaborating with one of their key heavy vehicle suppliers to work on a technology that can be deployed in the industry as a whole rather than doing it in a siloed approach. So it's, it's really critically important that there is the space to enable that, that collaboration because otherwise we just won't be able to, to, to meet the, the targets that that we need to meet if we're going to avoid a climate emergency. Do you think that the roadmap we have at the moment is going to last the distance or are we going to have to revisit um, our approach as 2030 and 2050 get closer? Uh, We definitely need to be increasing our ambition, the ambition in our targets, moving faster if we can. So as I mentioned earlier, we will be setting our targets for 2035. The Climate Change Authority will be sort of doing some work to input to what that needs to be to align with a pathway to a one and a half degree warmer world in 2050. I can't speak to exactly what range of targets that's likely to be, but it needs to be significantly more ambitious than where we're at with 2030. So that pace of change needs to be moving quickly. That's going to involve a lot of heavy lifting with the energy sector, particularly through the deployment of renewable energy. So that, again, needs to be taking place at, you know, at pace and at scale. And hard to see how that's going to accelerate without proper industry cooperation. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we are seeing government starting to play a key role in some areas. So, for example, with transmission and distribution and looking at in New South Wales, we have the renewable energy zones, which is, you know, intended to provide that framework to coordinate and scale renewable energy in particular areas and make sure that you've got the infrastructure needed to roll that out. But, you know, that's just one area and there's a lot more to do across a number of other sectors as well. Next time, we're going to talk about the possible tension between collaboration and competition law and how regulatory frameworks and enforcement agencies around the world are dealing with that tension. In the meantime, thank you so much, Alana, for laying that all out for us. And thank you for being on The Competitive Edge. My pleasure. Great to be here. What a great interview. It's great to have some more certainty about our targets and our obligations but I can't help thinking things might have been a bit simpler if we were allowed to have a price on carbon. Yeah, it sounds like there are a few models out there to choose from off the rack, but we've decided to go the do-it-yourself option, obviously for historical and political reasons, as Alona mentioned. There are a few areas where we have aligned our approach with what's going on overseas, especially when it comes to competition and consumer law, digital platforms, but for climate regulation, maybe not so much. Is that going to make it harder for our industries to partner with international businesses that are using different frameworks? I mean, it's still the same science and I guess largely the same technology, but when it comes to financial investments and structuring, there may be some additional complexity there. 
And of course, there's already a fair bit of complexity when it comes to collaborations with other businesses here or overseas, especially when they might be your competitors. There sure is. Uh, next time, we'll be talking to partner Elizabeth Avery and lawyer Radha Rathi about how to approach those kind of collaborations without falling foul of the regulators. So this episode has a sequel? Oh, it's an epic saga, Moya. Oh, it sure feels that way. But before we go, what else is in your crystal ball? Well, speaking of FOI requests, uh, our friends at Emlex have got hold of some correspondence showing that the ACCC met with Treasury a couple of times to discuss their proposals for the merger approval regime about a month before Chair Gina Cascott-Leib's speech to the National Press Club, where she laid them out publicly for the first time. She said at the time that the ACCC had made a submission to Treasury, didn't she? She did. And the submission was redacted from the files that Emlex got, unfortunately, but unsurprisingly. Hmm. And you certainly expect that the ACCC would meet with Treasury before announcing something as big as all this. It did get me thinking, though, you know, when you've got a meeting between the ACCC chair and the Treasury secretary and the deputy secretary for markets on a law reform matter, I mean, you think everyone's going to be pretty open about their positions. You would. So I just wonder, would the chair then have gone all out on the proposal at the National Press Club if she didn't think Treasury would take to the next stage and sooner rather than later to keep up the momentum? So when the new chair was appointed... We wondered whether she'd pursue the merger reform project with the same enthusiasm as the previous chair, Rod Sims, AO. Is that still a question? No, I think this is clearly as important as it ever was to the ACCC and to Chair Gina Cascotlieb, GCG. She has her own honour, does she? Well, don't the Brits have a GCMG? Uh, They do. God calls me God, according to Bernard in Yes Minister. That sounds about right. Anyway, if all that's right, then surely it won't be too long before we see the full detail of the merger proposal as part of a Treasury consultation, maybe even with some exposure draft legislation. And that's the crystal ball. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including our own partner, Elizabeth Avery and lawyer Radha Rathi in the road to net zero two to net two zero. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.